You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Hello and welcome to What Matters Most, a podcast hosted by me, Antonia Preble, and my good friend, Jackie Maguire, who also happens to be a clinical psychologist. Together, we will explore everyday issues that make up the moral and cultural climate of our era, issues that have a real impact on how we experience and feel about our lives. I hope you get as much out of them as we do. Hey, Jackie. Hey, Antonia. How are you today? Well, I'm actually sitting in front of you, which is very nice to not be behind a screen. It is very nice to not be behind a screen. Yeah, most of the time in the lead up to today, Jackie and I have been communicating via either voice notes or through Zoom screens. So yes, it is so nice to be here in person. Yes. Having a chat about, in fact, having a chat. So I wanted to talk today about how to have difficult conversations. And what sparked this for me was I was listening to a podcast the other day with Esther Perel, the world famous psychotherapist. Relationship guru. Relationship guru. We love her. If you haven't listened to Esther Perel, also listen to that as well as our podcast. Um, But anyway, she made an interesting point because she said, nowadays, we have to have a lot more difficult conversations than ever before because in many ways, modern life is so much freer than it ever has been because gender roles as they were defined in the past are just so much more open now. So whereas things were more regulated in the past, now so many elements of our lives, of our relationships are open and up for discussion and negotiation based on how we feel as individuals as opposed to how society operates as a collective. So because we are just going to be having to have lots more difficult conversations than ever. I thought today it might be great to talk about how on earth you do that. Well, I think it's also wider than our everyday decision-making, right, around uncomfortable, challenging, tricky conversations is probably the word that I use in my work. And I just think about, to get a bit nerdy for a second, if we look at the geopolitical landscape that we are currently living in, if we look at war that's occurring in Europe, if we look at distress that's coming from economic instability and the socioeconomic gap that's happening here in New Zealand, when people are under stress and strain, tension rises. Mm -hmm. When we have events that are occurring in the world around us that we see through social media, that we hear about in an ongoing way, it rises things for people. It rises tension and strain. And whether you're looking at race relations, whether you're looking at how people live well, those issues come to the front, I think, a lot at the moment Mm -hmm. because of the difficulty that's out there. And I think the vulnerability in the population after the last two and a half years. And so I agree when stress and tension is high, when we have complex issues where we may have differing points of perspective, I think that ability to have really good conversations that are heartfelt and authentic and tackle the issue rather than the person is really important to be able to have that. It really is. And that's such a good point to remember that we are sometimes more primed to find a conversation more difficult than others. And I can definitely relate to that. Like if I'm tired or hungry or under some other kind of... Now is not the time to be having that chat. Yeah, but I'll also just find things more difficult and I'll 
I won't be in a in the right place to have that chat because my stress and tension will have risen. But as you say, if the kind of general population's stress and tension has just risen as a group because of the difficult last couple of years, it just makes things harder, doesn't it? And I guess makes you have to kind of dig even deeper to try to have these positive conversations. But I guess what I want to ask, first of all, is why are some conversations so difficult? Like why as humans, do we find it so difficult to talk about things that are perhaps there's conflict involved or that are just sensitive to us? Like why is it so difficult? Why can't we just say what's on our mind? Well, I think human beings are complex and I think most of us are well-meaning and we don't want to hurt other people. So I think part of that is a genuine care for others of, I don't want to raise something if I put a step wrong, I don't want to make this worse. I think sometimes there's a hopefulness that if I avoid it, it will just magically fix itself. Mm. And generally if the distress is there, the distress is there and not talking about it means the distress will just grow. But I think there is this outward hope that if I just let it rest, maybe it will disappear. And I think when things are topics that are prickly or contentious, if we feel like perhaps we should know more than we do, so take big issues like race relations, et cetera, I don't want to appear ignorant, for example. Mm. How do I raise it? I don't want people, you know, I don't care if someone, if I'm out there and I don't know lots about ecology or if I don't know much about how to DIY my pantry properly, you know, if I don't know stuff about that, who cares? Mm. But if they're really important topics that are pertinent to how we live as a society, and I think I'm going to come across as ignorant or stupid, I might not want to speak up. Mm -hmm. Underlying that, I think we just, we have a need to belong. We have a need to relate. And if there's anything that is going to put those relationships in jeopardy, then probably there's an element of fight or flight there, which is either I'm going to avoid it, I'm going to flee, which is from your, you know, fight or flight, that's mm -hmm. my flight response, or I'm going to get my back up, I'm going to get defensive, I'm going to get into fight mode. And so I think when you look at conflict, you often see those two responses if we're not coming at it from a very calm, clear-headed perspective. I avoid or I come in guns blazing. Is would the fight, flight or freeze be in there as well? Because I know for me... If I'm having a difficult conversation, I can I feel like I sometimes go into freeze mode. Mind blank. Yeah, mind blank and just sort of a bit numb and I just don't say anything. Mm. <laughs> I, I literally kind of feel a bit frozen. And I think that could be your evolutionary response to mm. risk. And I would call those interpersonal risks. Raising a conversation about something challenging or tricky is an interpersonal risk. You're making yourself vulnerable. Mm. And as human beings, we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. I also think there's probably a processing aspect to this. So some people are good at processing on the spot and they're good at processing out loud. Others need time. And that's not necessarily an introversion, extroversion split, which so many people dive into that. I think we just process differently. Yeah. Friends of mine have recently had an epiphany about the same thing. They're a married couple and they were having some difficulty when they were talking about difficult things because the girl in the relationship would say her piece and then he just wouldn't say anything. And she thought he just wasn't listening or actively kind of fending it off. But in fact, exactly what you were just saying, they worked out that he was just processing and just took a bit longer to process than she did. And eventually when he was ready to respond, he would and they could move forward. But yeah, that was a great learning for them to, to recognize that not everyone processes things at the same speed and in the same way. And then you get more complex, right? So if we've got topics that are emotional, because really I think that's where the 
the tricky conversations come, there's a feeling attached to it. That's why it's become hard. And if there are feelings involved, potentially you're then also tapping into people's attachment styles, which is a whole podcast in itself, Antonia. (laughs) But in terms of how we've grown up with relationships, if we are in a difficult conversation and I feel like, you know, I need to fix it, I want to make it better, I don't want there to be tension and strain on the table, if I've grown up with an anxious attachment style, I might come into a difficult conversation trying to please, trying to fix it, trying to brush it over and make it okay. You may have someone who's got an avoidant attachment style who has managed stress by shutting down, by going internal, by being self-reliant. You imagine you have two types of people at the table trying to have a conversation where one is at you trying to fix it from an anxiety point of view. The other person has shut down because they're like, I can't manage this. This is too hard. You've then got that dynamic at play as you're trying to have these conversations. So, you know. And is that quite common for people to have different attachment styles which play out in this way? Absolutely under strain. So, So attachment styles flare up when you're stressed. And if you're talking about difficult conversations, it's likely your beacons are on, <laughs> you know, you're, you're heightened in emotion. And so I think it is really important just to acknowledge that human beings are complex. And when you come to a difficult conversation, even though there's probably an issue at hand, you have to be really calm and centered. You really want clear thought beforehand so that you can be aware of what might get triggered or activated for you and that you can come at it from a very helpful perspective or from a helpful point of view rather than getting stuck or tangled in the other factors that might be at play. So with that pause for reflection and self-awareness before you start a difficult conversation, which does sound like a really good idea, not to self, um, do you have to know what attachment style you are in order to do that? And do you have to know what attachment style your partner or your family member or your boss or whatever it is who you're talking to is? Or can you just because that's quite an um, academic way of looking at things. Or can you kind of just tune into your common sense and logic to work out what might be going on? Well, I think if we could all walk around with a post-it note on our head saying, I've got an anxious attachment, I'm an avoidant attacher, I'm secure, you know, wouldn't that make life easy if we all knew what that meant? But that's not reality. Yeah. And yes, you might know what your partner, what their attachment style is, if you're psycho-educated, if yeah. you know about that. But most people probably don't. So now if we look at conflict, I think first of all, it's important to not jump in and not to rush conversations about tricky things. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think you need to be really clear about what the conflict is about for you, if you're the person that's raising that conflict. And if you look kind of through the psychology literature, there are three types of conflicts. There's task conflict, which is we've got something that needs to be problem solved, or we've got an issue that we need to debate over or find a way to manage. You know, if you look at Couples, for example, the issue might be we don't feel like we're evenly pulling our weight in chores. Mm -hmm. If you go to a work task conflict, it may be we've got different ideas about how to best please the client. So task conflict is good conflict. If you can come at that without attaching your personal stuff to it, you can really debate an issue. You can problem solve creatively. You can have good, candid conversations. That's task conflict. Can I just interrupt you before you move on? What do you mean when you say if you cannot bring your personal stuff to that So if you're having a conflict conversation about how do we best manage this issue. Say the chores one. Say the chores one. Yeah. Then you've got 
okay, we've got X amount of chores on the table. We want to come at this so we feel like we both evenly contribute to the household. How do we best do that? Like imagine if you could have a clear head conversation rather than a heart conversation over that. So I'm not bringing in my past hurt. I'm not bringing in my judgments. I'm not bringing in my assumptions. Just this is the issue and how do we solve it together? So what would be an example of someone bringing in their personal stuff of that that same issue? How would that conversation So that, that conversation might be, I come into that and I've got a preconceived judgment that my partner is lazy, that they don't pull their weight, yeah. that I'm the one carrying the mental load. And so if we just split off for a second before we finish talking about our different types of conflict, when you think about how we get to a place of conflict, there's what's called a ladder of inference. What does that actually mean? It means that we observe lots of things in our daily life. We observe our interactions with people. We observe things that happen in our work, at home, etc. And that's like data. You know, our brain is gathering data all the time. But because our brains need to be smart to process so much information, we then start to make assumptions on that data. Mm -hmm. So if you take the chores analogy, you know, I might have noticed that my husband didn't take the rubbish out on Monday night. And then on Tuesday, I might have noticed that he left to work and he didn't make the bed or help me with X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. That's data. My assumption on top of that from filtering that information may then say to me, he's not thinking about the family, he's just thinking about himself. You know, or my assumption is his job is more important than the family home. I've made that assumption. I haven't asked him that. I haven't checked that out. I've made that assumption. Mm-hmm. Sitting on top of the assumptions, if we then start to like accumulate our assumptions, we then make conclusions or we make full-on judgments like he doesn't care or he's selfish. Mm-hmm. Or And so when you look at that hierarchy of how we gather data make sense of that data, come to conclusions around that data, what often happens when we get to a place of conflict is that we start debating our conclusions, our judgments. We don't debate the data. We don't debate what we've seen. We come into the conversation heightened in our emotion, supercharged by our assumptions and judgments because you like back them up for yourself. You know, if you have this thought of my partner's selfish or my partner doesn't care about me, your brain will go and find every piece of evidence to back that up and it will start ignoring all the counter evidence. Mm. And so you bring that into this conflict conversation, right? So you are coming from a supercharged, I'm up for the fight. Yes. Rather than, Antonia's looking at me like, shit, this is ringing bells, Jackie. Oh, oh, I'm, ding, 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 I ding, am ding, like ding. relating <laughs> so hard <laughs> to everything you're saying because also it feels really good to come in emotional and yeah, hard, doesn't it? Yeah, because I've got my grounds yeah, to stand on. I'm going to back, back myself. And I, totally, and I feel like so justified in whatever yeah. slight against me. But how happened. do those conversations go? They're terrible. They, yeah, you end up mostly good. combusting. Yes. But if you came into that conversation without you're selfish or you don't care, if you came into that conversation with, hey, I noticed that yesterday you didn't take the rubbish out and today you left me with all the chores for the house. I'm really upset about that. Mm. That's quite different to coming It's commenting in. on behaviour as opposed to fundamental as a person. essence of them as a person. Correct. Yeah, that's really smart. So, so really yes, smart. that's one part Or you might come into that conversation with, actually, my current partner does all these things and the not taking the rubbish out and the not helping me with the chores is just an odd slip for them. But maybe my past relationship, actually, my prior partner 
was a dick. (laughs) He was really selfish. He didn't treat me very well. And so actually I'm bringing my past baggage into this conversation. It's not even about you and me. I'm bringing past conflict in. So from that perspective, being able to really go, what's at the core of the conflict? What's the issue I want to solve is important. But if I backtrack us for a second, there's there's task conflict, right? We've got an issue. Then there's relationship conflict, which is about personality clashes or values clashes. And I think we can all think of people we've worked in, people we've had, you know, our family members. We're at your core. Maybe you just have a different way of seeing the world. Or perhaps someone's really organized and someone does things on the fly. You've just got different ways of operating. So that can be a conflict, not necessarily Mm. over an issue, but just how we be and operate together. Could that be people with different political ideas? Is that an example of this kind of conflict? I think so if it becomes wedded to how they think and how they act. So a political issue could be a task issue that we talk about, right? There's an idea on the table and can we have a rational, clear (laughs) conversation about that issue? Or are my political views so wed to how I see the world that that's just how I talk and how I act and that then becomes a relationship difficulty? Yeah, makes sense. The third type of conflict is status conflict. So if, for example, you're at work, you know, maybe there's status conflict over, you know, peers that are lateral and, you know, are we working collaboratively or are you trying to tell me what to do when you're supposed to be my peer? Mm. Maybe it's in relationships where you feel like you should be equal in your relationship, but one person's taking a more of a power position than the other Mm. person. So being able to stop and go, what's getting at me? Why am I having emotional reactions to a task, to a person, to a dynamic that's at play, I think is really important. I also think when it comes to conflict, you have to ask yourself, is this a one-off or is this continual? Because if it's a one-off thing that's really bugged you, my hunch would be not to jump on it, Mm -hmm. to sit and let it settle. And maybe it warrants a conversation if it's been a really big thing that's happened or you've been really upset and hurt or if someone has said something or acted in a way where you go, no, actually that wasn't okay and I want to raise it with them. But at other times... Maybe we're just in a bad way. Maybe we're tired or hungry or life is stressful. And maybe at another point in time, I wouldn't have reacted so strongly. I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to ask about that because we live in a world now where it's all about sharing everything, right? Like sharing the minutiae of your own experiences, including the really tough emotional stuff. And while there is clearly a lot of benefit for that. It seems to me that sometimes it goes a bit overboard and it's quite a a self-serving way of behaving. And Like it's cathartic to me to share everything that's going on in my head and the way I'm processing it. That's right. Yeah. And say, so bringing up a difficult conversation with someone or telling someone you're finding them difficult in whatever way, but actually, is it about you and not them? Is it always the right thing to talk about an issue that you are having with someone? And I mean, my instinct is that first you should look at yourself and exactly like what you said, like, am I bringing past stuff? Am I being triggered by this? Because I don't know, I feel like sometimes it's maybe just not fair (laughs) to put your stuff and your reactions on other people if in fact it's your stuff. I mean, it's a difficult area and we won't get that right all the time, but I don't know, it just we seem to be in a world now where you're allowed to voice anything. Voice anything and we you know voice your reactions to anything. And again, that's can be really good, but I, I don't know, sometimes I think it can go too far. Yeah, me too. So I think there's pausing, there's looking at what actually is the conflict. 
there's assessing for yourself, is this me, is it them, is it a one-off, is it a pattern? But the second part to that I think then is, well, what's the goal? Why would I want to raise this conversation? What am I trying to achieve? If you are going into a conversation wanting to prove your point, that's the wrong reason to have a trick, a tricky conversation. Damn it. You know? Yeah. This is ruining my life. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to be the bearer of bad if, news. But Jackie, Jackie, but what if you know you're right? <laughs> like 100% no. I don't, but I think that's the position that lots of people are in, Antonia. Yeah. Like I know I'm right, but actually are you? You know you're right through yes, your am. lens. <laughs> Yeah. through your life view, from your perspective. And part of having effective conflict conversations or tricky conversations is actually being able to come in saying, perhaps I'm wrong or perhaps there's more to the story. Mm. And that takes inner wisdom. And it takes courage to go, I'm going to go in and I'm going to go into this conversation to seek to understand, not to defend my point. And even as you say those words, I feel like my whole system kind of softens around it. Like that is so much of a kind of more permeable way to meet someone Mm -hmm. as opposed to when you're, when you know you're right or you want to prove your point. Like it's such a hard energy, isn't it? Where you're just not going to absorb anything. It's combative. It's combative. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, there are technical things that I could say on this podcast, like for example, Pick a time and place where you want to raise a a challenging conversation. Do it somewhere on neutral territory. Do it somewhere where you're not going to be interrupted for time. Then it's like, well, how do you start that conversation? Do you come in and whack him in the jugular where it hurts from the start? Well, that's probably not going to go well. Instead, can you raise things with I statements? And I'm sure many people have heard this. It won't be new news, you know, I'm wanting to raise something with you. The way I would start a conversation, if it's, for example, a girlfriend or my husband or my family member um, or even a really good colleague is, I've been thinking about wanting to raise something with you. It's actually really tricky. I don't want to cause harm to our relationship. I really care about you or our relationship's really valuable, but there's been something that's playing on my mind and I really want to raise that with you. This is what I've been noticing or X and Y have happened and this is how it's made me feel. And so you're coming back to I statements, me statements. My tone is soft. I'm there from a caring perspective. I'm not there to hurt you. And I think if you can come in with that headspace and that thought process, you're starting off to a much better process Mm. than coming in to win. So we just have to let that go as much as possible. The idea that we want to bring the other person around 100% to our point of view. We actually want to find somewhere, something in the middle. Well, I think it's what am I trying to achieve? And if I'm trying to achieve healing, if I'm trying to achieve understanding, if I want us to be able to continue to work together at work, for example, if I want to be able to have a good relationship with my sibling, because actually, even though we fundamentally disagree on some things, they're my family and I love them and, you know, and I want to maintain a good relationship, whatever it is, whatever your outcome is, You really have to go, are my words and are my actions conducive to that? Mm. And I read a really lovely analogy that I now won't remember who I read it from, which said in life, and I talk about this often, you own 50% of your relationships. But when it comes to tricky conversations, if you want to raise it, you own 100% of that process, meaning you're springing this on someone else. They're not necessarily aware you're raising this. So you have to be the bigger person. You have to be the grown-up through this conversation. You have to uh, support and foster a process that protects the relationship or enables the relationship to heal Mm -hmm. rather than to cause more damage. Yeah, that's a really good point. So what if you 
do all that and follow that structure that you just mentioned about making I statements, talking about the issue as opposed to anything in the past, acknowledging that it's difficult with the goal of healing and moving forward. What if despite all of that, you're not met with a great reaction? What do you do then? Yeah, I I think you have to look at what's within your control and what's not within your control. Also, I think you have to go into that conversation knowing what you're asking for. So if you're raising conflict, if you're raising something that's tricky or, or a dynamic that's going on, what are you wanting from that person or what do you want going forward? So this is, I'm, I'm going to credit this to my mother, who's a psychologist. I learned lots from her in my life and her formula is, this is what's happened. So you label what's gone on. This is how it's made me feel, or this has been the impact on me. This is what I've interpreted it to mean. So you're also giving your interpretation because your assumption might be absolutely wrong. Mm. And then this is what I need from you. So I'm labeling what's gone on. I'm telling you how I feel. I'm telling you my assumption. And actually, this is what I need going forward. Because if you're seeking to understand and coming from a place of care and, and love and warmth or collegiality or whatever the position you're coming from, if you can label your assumption, the impact on you and what you need going forward, you've actually got a, a basis to be talking about rather mm. than just hurt feelings that you're talking about. Mm. So I think An actionable. An actionable things. outcome. Yeah, yeah, outcomes, yeah. And if you go into that conversation, so let's just go back to our example. Just say I raise with my partner, hey, I'm wanting to raise this with you. The last few days I've noticed that you haven't done, you know, the dishes, you haven't taken the rubbish out. It's left me feeling like I'm carrying the mental load. It's left me feeling like perhaps you don't care about our family, or that's what I've taken it to mean, that maybe your headspace is prioritising work. Um, You know, I get really upset by that. And what I really need going forward is to feel like we're an equal partnership. So if I raised it in that way, you'd hope that you can then check out that assumption with your partner, that you can go have that conversation around how do we feel like we're equal together. And if you're met with hostility, defensiveness, anger coming back, but you know in your core that you have come at this from a trying to solve an issue, if you've come at it with care at heart, if you've been able to really try and hold effective practices through that, you know, I think you, you've you done all that you can. And mm. one conversation might not be the only conversation. Maybe you just need pause and time out. Maybe that other person is processing what you've said. Mm. Maybe they need to go away and think about it. Maybe they need to go and have a reflection on what's going on for them and the meaning that that holds for them. Mm-hmm. And you would hope, right, that you can come back together and you can work through that. Because I believe all relationships, whether it's colleagues, family, romantic, children, whoever it is, I believe most of us can heal through anything if you want to. And I've seen that. I've seen people come back from really, really difficult life challenges. I've seen partners come back from when there's been affairs or when when there's been really, really gnarly challenges. I've seen Mm. couples come back from that and have stronger relationships afterwards, for example. So people can do it. If if you're willing to to put in the work. If you're willing to put in the work. You're having difficult conversations style. If it keeps erupting into fights, well, there's room for improvement there. Yeah. And that's a really good thing to remember, isn't it? Like there is you can always improve at this stuff. And because sometimes you can find yourself in a relationship or in a situation where everything just feels inevitable. And this just is the reality of the situation because person A is person A and person B is person B. But that's just the current reality, right? Like there are absolutely things you can do to improve any relationship. Any situation can get better. Absolutely. And John Gottman is one of my favorite psychology researchers. I love him. For those of you that don't know him, He has researched couples over the last two decades. He looks at 
communication styles that get in the way of relationships and relationships that work well. And, you know, he's got research where he can look at a couple having dialogue and he can predict to a pretty high percentage who will make it and who will get divorced. And he does pretty amazing research. But in his research, he says 69% of issues are unresolvable in relationships, whether that be personality style, whether that be a core fundamental difference. So are you wasting your time having continual conflict over something that's non-changeable and actually should you be spending your conversations trying to seek understanding of why that person is coming from where they're coming from. Wow, that's really interesting. So 69%, I mean, that's significantly over 50, that's significantly over half. Yeah. But still, he's not saying that's cause for the end of a relationship at all. But it's like, where are you spending your effort and time? And that comes back to what's the outcome or what are you trying to achieve? So does this mean that we should just let some things go (laughs) if we think it's possible to do I think if it's important to you, you need to raise it. But I think you need to raise it to understand. You need to not raise it to change someone. Because if you can have a conversation to seek to understand, if you are able to let that person know what the impact on you is, if I'm trying to come from a perspective of caring and understanding rather than I'm going to prove to you that I'm right, Mm -hmm. then you're in a position to navigate how to work together. Mm. And really that's what it comes down to, right? The distress is there. The strain is there if there's conflict. Can we resolve it by both agreeing on what, we want going forward. Well, if you're going into that conversation trying to get that person to think like you, you're probably going to fail. But actually, if you go in going, how do we make this work? And how do we just listen to each other, understand each other's perspectives, be able to give each other some enlightenment on how we've been impacting each other? I think you're in a position to really then go, how do we navigate this to get better going forward? Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for any type of conflict. And any type of relationship as well. And any type of relationship. And again, if there's continual conflict, you know, maybe you need a mediated conversation. If it's at work, maybe that's a neutral party comes to sit with you. If it's your relationship, maybe you go and see a counsellor. You know, Mm -hmm. like there may be times if that person is really important and you really want to resolve their conflict or do it better, that you need some help to have those conversations. And that's completely fine. Well, of of course it's completely fine because we're complex. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. I had a um, relationship therapist on my podcast. And she was saying, I think think the question was, you know, what's the one piece of advice you would give to couples? And she was like, come to therapy, meaning come to therapy earlier than the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Because most people only go when things are really, really bad and they're at rock bottom or crisis point. But if you go a little bit earlier, then the outcomes are so much better. And the process can actually be really interesting and fascinating and helpful as opposed to, you know, waiting through. But think of two people coming into a conversation and you've got your suitcase and I've got my suitcase. And in our suitcases are our childhood experiences, the traumas that we've had in our life, our political views, our gender, the roles that we have, our jobs that we do. You know, you bring all of that with you. And so how much are you loaded in that conversation? And so I really think that process of be calm, be clear, and follow a relationship dynamic and that conversation that enables for outcome or moving forward rather than battling your perspective or your point, you're on a highway to hopeful good outcomes. Yeah, it sounds like a very good highway to be on. So let's like flip this for a second. What if you're the person receiving on the receiving end of a difficult conversation, which can be really uncomfortable, right? Like someone's generally telling you, either in a helpful way. I'm pissed off with you. You've annoyed me. You've hurt me. You are not enough. You are not okay. Yeah, whatever it is, they are not happy 
with, with you. you. Uh, and it's very difficult to be in that position. It's extremely uncomfortable. So yeah, any thoughts and advice for if you're the recipient yeah. of a difficult And I think we probably all have our immediate responses. Like mine would be to cry. If someone yeah. gives me negative feedback, I don't like hurting anyone, I'd probably burst into tears in front of them. Mm-hmm. Or if it's work or I'm trying to not show that I'm crying, I'm probably like very, very quiet whilst I'm internally trying to hold it together. Yeah, other too, people might other people might get very defensive. Other people mm-hmm. might be, get very angry. We probably all have It's our, all the same thing, right? Like those are three sides of the same coin. Absolutely. Yeah. It's your immediate emotional response to being under threat because somebody giving you interpersonal feedback is a threat to your belonging, to your need to be part of the pack. Which is so primal and at the base of everything. Absolutely. It always comes back to our primal way of being, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? And I think it comes down to who you are as a person. If you are someone that can think fast on your feet, if you've been thinking about that already, if you've wanted to raise that with the other person but you haven't managed to, if you feel like you're in a space to have a conducive conversation in the moment, then go along with that conversation at that time. But you also have permission to say, I hear what you're saying and I need time to think about it. I do want to come back and have this conversation with you. I hear that it's really important, you know, or that's absolutely caught me off guard. And Could you even say, I'm feeling really upset? Like, I'm feeling really triggered by this. I'm feeling really angry or just naming whatever your response is. Is that a helpful thing? The true psychologist should probably say yes to that all the time. But I think there are some situations where perhaps you don't want to make yourself more vulnerable than you need to. Mm. So, for example, I'm thinking of a status conversation at work where a really good manager or leader, for example, or someone that has your best interests at heart, you know, if you've got a really good person leading you, just say giving you feedback, then yeah, it's probably completely appropriate to say, I'm hurt, I'm upset, I just need to process. If you've got a leader that perhaps doesn't have your best interests at heart, who hasn't had your back, who knows what their agenda is, you might not want to show all your cards. And so I think you just have to again, go, what's the most appropriate thing in this moment? Is it okay? Do I have the trust and the backing of this relationship to be completely vulnerable or not? Mm. Um, And that will be different per person, per situation. But you do absolutely always have permission, I think, to say, I just need some time to think about this. Mm. Can we come back and talk about it? So let's assume either in the moment you do feel like you're okay to have this conversation or you've had some time to think about it and you've come back to have this conversation. What then is some advice for hearing difficult things about yourself? I think no matter whether you're the starter of the conversation or the recipient of the conversation, if you can just have in your head, I'm seeking to understand. And again, there's probably lots of chat about active listening. What the heck is active listening? And really for me, the core of it is, If someone's raising something with you, can you listen in a way that you can explain it back to them and they go, yeah, that's it, you've got it. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Being able to listen and hear doesn't mean that you have the same opinion. But I think it is really important that you do that seek to understand. So what's an example? Someone's raising something with you that you've hurt their feelings or um, you've made a statement that's really upset them and grinded their values, for example. If a friend, for example, raised that with me, I would be very upset, but I think I would say, can you tell me more? Mm-hmm. Like, when did that happen? How did that make you feel? How did, I'd be asking the questions back. Mm. How, what did you interpret that to mean? And I would just be asking those curious, open questions to understand. And probably I'd be crying and tearful through the process, mm. but, but, but I'd be and trying if, to glean information yeah. from them about where is this coming from? And I think a really useful process, and this comes from 
a process called a Margot therapy, which is often used with couples, is you take turns to talk. Mm. So you ask a question and you just let the person finish. You sit and you listen. You don't interject. You don't butt in. You don't try and get defensive. You sit to listen, to understand, and you wait for your turn to have your say. And if you can follow that kind of process, it enables everyone to have a turn, allows everyone to bring their perspectives to the table. And once you've got it, once the other person feels seen, heard, and understood, which will probably have that phrase in every episode of this podcast, because I think it comes to the core, but human beings need to feel seen, heard, and understood. Yeah, I completely agree. And once you feel seen, heard, and understood, then I think you can say, can I share with you where I was coming from? Mm. I'm really sorry that I've made you feel X. I'm really sorry that that had that impact on you. Can I explain from you where I was coming from? What if you fundamentally disagree with what they're saying? Like say you actually think that it's really unfair that they are saying whatever they are saying, i.e. completely their issue and unfair that you're having to kind of wear it in this moment. I'm like, what's going on for Antonia? She's got an example in her head as she's giving me this. I actually don't. I actually don't. I'm just thinking of, um, I guess, raising the stakes on what a difficult conversation might be. And that's tricky, right? Yeah, it is tricky. I think, again, I'd be listening. I'd always listen first. And then I think it's just how you phrase it back. The whole, I'm going to agree to disagree, I really don't like that term because it means we're not willing to commit to a process to try and move forward on it. But I do think if you fundamentally disagree, then you need to be able to express that in a way that is respectful. Mm -hmm. Because if you can keep your respect, if you can keep your integrity, you sleep well at night. So if somebody's shared with you their conflict, you've heard it, I think you can still apologise that that's had that impact on them. Yeah, true. It doesn't mean that you agree with them. Yeah. And I think this is where validation comes in. And I talk about validating a lot in the work that I do. I talk to managers a lot about validating people. And I often get, well, if I validate, does it mean I'm agreeing with them? Does it mean that I am siding up with them? And I say, no, it absolutely doesn't. You can validate someone's emotional experience without agreeing what the cause is. You know, I'm really sorry you've been made to feel like feel like that. And then I think you can tack on, you know, that wasn't where I was coming from. But I think I'd stick with the validation. And I think you then need to be able to give a clear explanation for you and your perspective. And I guess it comes back as well to what you were talking about before about what is the larger goal. And if it's not about being right, if it's about healing the relationship so that you can move forward positively, that sort of reframes it. So even if you did think that it was unfair and or unjustified, it is still happening. So what is the best way forward? I because this is the reality. That's family right dynamics, now. right? So I hear people that go, oh, my mother's, my mother's always on her own agenda or my sister or my brother or they come at this and no matter what you do, this is the way they think. You know, there are family dynamics like that everywhere. And again, I said, say you've got someone who's a serial raiser of conflict in your family, you may know internally at your core, hey, it actually doesn't matter what I say or do, there's always going to be something. And if you're, if you're calm in yourself, if you've got your own process, then I think you can either choose to sit and listen or you can say, you know, if it's continual and it's problematic, hey, I hear this is a real concern for you. I'm really sorry about that, but I'm not in a place to engage in this conversation. Yeah, and that's fair as well. So are there things we can do to practice this, Jackie? Because it's really tough when you're in the moment and your blood is up and perhaps it has to, the conversation has to happen in that moment so you can't go away and 
wait to calm down? Are there things that we can kind of prime ourselves for? So if you're raising the chat, if you're raising the conversation, then I think take the time to prep. And you might prep by writing. You might prep by talking with a confidant, someone that you really uh, trust and who gives good advice. And in that prep, I would be saying, what are you wanting to raise? Why are you wanting to raise it? What are you hoping the outcome is? Be really clear in those three things before you go into that conversation. I hope that by listening to this conversation, uh, that if somebody raises something with you that you feel overwhelmed by, if you feel like you're not in a position to have that conversation in the spot, that there's a voice inside your head that says, hey, remember to that podcast I listened to, it's actually within my rights to say, I just need some time and I want to come back to you. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think you then have the chance to go away, reflect, think, come up with your own plan before you re-engage in that conversation. And you mentioned writing before. Do you think it's sometimes a good idea to write someone a letter, a message, an email to communicate what you want to bring up as opposed to bringing it up? I think writing can be really effective, especially Mm -hmm. if you're someone that finds talking hard. Mm -hmm. So if you get stuck on words, if you feel like you get easily swayed by the other person, if you're in a dynamic where there is a power indifference or you've got someone that's quite forceful in their persuasion of you, yes, writing might be helpful. But again, I, I come back to what are you trying to convey in that written letter? And can you come from that format of this is what's happened, this is how I feel, this has been the impact, this is what I need. You know, can you follow that format in your letter writing? Because if you're writing a letter full of heightened negative emotion, full of judgment and blame, that's not going to be helpful. That's not going to work. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But I think it's it's good to know that writing a letter and email is not necessarily a cop-out at all. Like it's things don't have to always Well, it's funny about the email, isn't it? Because I have an internal grit response to an email. It feels impersonal. It feels harsh. Where are they when they get that email? Mm-hmm, so true. for me, a handwritten letter is much nicer than an email. And there's no research on that to the best. Well, there probably is, but I don't know about it. But for me, that's just an internal feeling of if this is a relationship that matters, because really conflict will stem from the relationships that matter. Sure. Yeah. We just if the relationship doesn't matter, yeah. then you're not going to put much attention yeah, or on. energy onto it. Yeah. But if it's a relationship that matters, take the time to write it out. Don't flick it on an email. Mm. I just think that's really impersonal. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Yeah, Having a handwritten letter, particularly now when no one writes handwritten it's letters, meaningful. it is meaningful and more significant. And I, I find that writing something also helps in a situation where you, you actually want to give the other person time to respond. Mm. Perhaps it's some sort of difficult news mm. that you're bringing up or le- letting them know about. And it seems to me to be a sort of a mark of respect to let them take that and process it in their mm. own time away from you mm. because then they can actually have their authentic reaction to it as opposed to having to perhaps pretend that they're feeling yeah. a different way to how they do to or, preserve the or relationship. Or internally calm the immediate response yeah. before they can get to their clear thinking. Yes, exactly. So a related question to having these difficult conversations is about when it is appropriate to have them or necessary to have them and also when it might be appropriate to just let it go and accept that there's a conflict or difference of opinion there. I guess I'm thinking about if, say, you and your family have really different political opinions or perhaps different fundamental values, that can be really challenging for that dynamic. But how do we navigate that? Do we have to bring up that conflict? Is it okay to continue to have good relationships with people that we do fundamentally think differently to? 
Well, I suppose my first thought would go to, if you raise that difference, what's the likelihood of them shifting their views? And if you're talking about people that have very strong viewpoints, maybe political, it may be religious, whatever it is, likelihood of they're entrenched in their views, it doesn't matter what you say, they're not going to shift them. Then I think you have to say, okay, if they're not going to change their views, do I raise something that's hurting me, concerning me, bugging me, because I'd just like them to understand where I'm coming from. Following that, you have to say, does that person have the capacity to hold their views and hold compassion for you? Some people have that ability and some people do not. So again, I think you really have to think hard about what is the point of me raising this. Thirdly, I'd say how much do those viewpoints make up that whole person? So do their political views or X views, is that a segment of them or does that tarnish and come out everything they do and say? What I'm trying to get to is that if that's a part of that person, if that's one set of their views, if they're unlikely to change it, if the conversation is not likely to be conducive, but you love them or you want them in your life, I think I'd let it go. Mm. And then you can choose how much you engage in those conversations with them or not. You may choose to at some point in time say, I believe differently on that. It's something that's really important to me. When you say those things, it upsets me. It hurts me. We have different fundamental views. You may at a time when it's not high conflict, it's not at the Christmas table with aunts and uncles and everyone around it, you may have a quiet conversation to raise how that impacts you. But if it's unlikely to change from there, I think you have to reconcile that in yourself and go, this is what I love about this person. This is what I care for them for and I'm going to choose to ignore that aspect. Mm, That's really practical advice and very encouraging actually. So we don't have to necessarily close the door on a relationship, on a person, which really has huge real life upset just because there's an element or a couple of elements about what they believe in that we disagree with. And I think you could look at vaccination status in the last 18 months in this country. That has caused rifts in families like I have never seen it before. Mm, me too. And people getting personally hurt and angry and in disbelief over, I think, getting caught off guard or surprised about people's viewpoints. And I think if you've got two adults that can approach the world through a lens of love and compassion and and understanding, you can have very different views and still have a relationship. Just don't go near that subject. (laughs) It's great advice. Well, thank you, Jackie. That's I feel quite heavy after that conversation. Do you? Oh, um, I feel, no, I don't think I feel heavy. I feel actually quite inspired is maybe too strong a word, but I'm I'm kind of looking forward to trying this out. because I can really see where I go wrong. And I can also really see that it takes some effort to do it this way because it feels a lot easier and more satisfying to do it the other way, the emotional. To win my point. To win, to, for someone to tell me I'm right and they're wrong and they're sorry. So it definitely takes kind of more like strength of character to do it this way. But having that goal of moving forward positively is just is such a, and how, if I want to move on positively and preserve this relationship, what's the best way to do that? This, well, yeah, what you've described absolutely makes sense. And I want people to hold the hope that if two people want to make a relationship work, whatever that relationship is, 
mostly you can. And if you can't, maybe that relationship has run its course and people come in and out of our lives. And again, that's okay. Reason, season, lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Cliche because it's true, as they often are. Thank you, Jackie. That was great. And yes, everyone listening, I hope that that was some good food for thought for you and that may help you in your next difficult conversation. Ciao. that was what matters most for this week thank you so much for listening if you did enjoy this week's episode it would be great if you could rate review and subscribe to this podcast as that helps let other people know that we're here thanks again see you next time